from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Bharat Kerala on June 30, 2014. Bharat is one of the most prominent senior journalists of Nepal, with a professional career of over four decades. He started his career in journalism as the chief reporter of the English daily The Rising Nepal in 1965, and then became editor of the parent newspaper and then ultimately the executive chairman and general manager of the newspaper corporation. He's the founder of the Nepal Press Institute, which nurtures and develops journalists native to Nepal. He was also instrumental in establishing the way for private rural FM radio stations. I started the interview by asking Bharat where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Nepal, in Kathmandu. That's the capital city. I grew up there. I had my education there. My almost the whole of my professional life was in Nepal. So I've been there since birth. Mm. Uh, it was only in 2005 that uh, Joanne and I moved to the United States. And between 2005 and now 2014, that's the nine years, we've been half the time in Nepal and half the time in the United States. So what was religious life like growing up? Well, I grew up in a Hindu family. Hinduism is the majority religion in in Nepal, uh, about 80%, 10% Buddhists, uh, about 3% Muslims, and then uh, there's a growing Christian population now. So that's that's how uh, the the population is divided religion-wise. And uh, so I belong to the majority uh, Hindu uh, religion. But the thing is, my family wasn't really too attached to the religious practices. You know, the uh, Hinduism has a lot of rituals. It's a very old religion. And it has a history that goes back to about 5,000 years. Over the years, the essence of the religion, you know, the spiritual aspect, you know, the, the moral aspect of religion is kind of lost. And what we are left with are the outward signs, you know, the rituals. So my mother used to call the priest and, you know, perform all the rituals from time to time. Almost every week there is something happening. Uh, so we used to have fun because there were always sweets and uh, <laughs> merriment during festivals and, you know, and we had these rituals. But the practice of religion wasn't much there. So, and and uh, so there are some pockets of conservative Hindus who are very attached to their religion and interpret the religion their own way. But my family was very liberal. So uh, mm-hmm. that's that's... The beginning. Then I went to a, a Jesuit school. It was how a boarding. Old, how old were you? I was eight years old. So I was in the school as a boarder for eight years until I finished high school. 
And uh, during those eight years, I had a very heavy dose of Christianity. You know, I had um, uh, the Bible, the Acts of the Apostles and everything else as a subject in my uh, high school living examination. So I had to study all of that. So I actually knew the Bible by heart. Mm. So I had that and then the priests and the Jesuit priests were my teachers. So there was that little bit of Christianity there mixed with the Hindu background. And, and in Nepal, you know, Buddhism comes as a bonus. That is, there is kind of intermingling of the two religions. The, the Buddhists don't regard themselves as a separate entity. It's almost like a part of Hinduism. And the Hindus accept them as their own. So there has never been a conflict between uh, the Hindus and the Buddhists in Nepal unlike in many other countries where they want that identity. You see, we are Buddhist, we are a Buddhist country. But in Nepal, it's kind of all, all mixed up, you know. <laughs> so I had a little bit of all of the major religions, even as I grew up. <laughs> mm-hmm. And why did your parents send you to a Jesuit school? Well, they, you know, they, they, that was the best school. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. they thought I would have a good education there. Uh, especially English, you know, being a small country, the outside contact with the rest of the world is in English. So everybody wanted uh, their children to have good English, and that was the only English medium school with American Jesuit priests teaching, you know. And the Jesuits were known to have good educational institutions. They had some in India, and they came to Nepal, and they said there's a good school opening so why, why why don't we put him there? And actually, the school started with us. I was one of the first students to join the school. My number was four. <laughs> you know, they, they numbered us uh, according to the alphabetical order, and my name starts with B, so I was number four. <laughs> so so uh, Corella is your family name? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. that's my family name. Mm-hmm. It's It's a Brahmin name. You know, the Hindu... Population is divided into four castes. There are the Brahmins, the priestly class, the educated class. Then they have the Chhatris, who are the fighting class. They, they defend the country. And then you have the Vaishyas. They are the trading class. They are the business people. And then you have the Chudra, unfortunately, the untouchables, who are supposed to serve the other three classes, you see. So I belong to the Brahmin. The Brahmin right. family. But uh, we didn't have that feeling, actually. My family was very liberal. What were your interests growing up? Well, uh, a lot of sports. I, I, I used to participate in all types of sports. Football, you know, soccer. We call it soccer here. And uh, Joanne and I have been watching World Cup quite regularly. We just finished watching one game and then now they have... They are playing extra time. We said, no, Warren is waiting for us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I can have a cricket, badminton, you know, and uh, hockey. And, yeah, a lot of sports. And I was always interested in reading. The, the librarian used to say, you are one of my best customers. You know, so I, I used to read a lot, a lot of literature, uh, novels and poetry and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you finished high school, what did you want to do? Um, my high school was uh, 
a 10-year one. That is it's called the Senior Cambridge. The, the, the tests were given by the Cambridge University in England. So when I finished that, I wanted to become an engineer. So I had taken uh, physics and chemistry and mathematics. So I would become an engineer, which didn't turn out to be the case. <laughs> Why is that? Well, what happened was, you know, at that time, you couldn't choose to study abroad. And in Nepal, we didn't have universities or um, technical schools where you could go into engineering or medicine. You had to go to India or um, the United States or Europe, you know. You could go only on government scholarships. You couldn't pay to study abroad. And most people couldn't afford it. My family couldn't have afforded it. So I was waiting for the scholarship. And somehow, by the time I began to explore possibilities and all, the time was over. So I lost that year. So then I said, what do I do now? I, I, I want to graduate, but at the same time, I cannot go and study engineering. That was my interest. So I graduated in other subjects. That was English, chemistry, and uh, no, English, economics, and political science. So that's that's what I got my degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what did you do after Well, that? I became a journalist. <laughs> you know, at that time, uh, the government of Nepal, you know, most of the media was in the hands of the government. So the, the largest newspapers were owned and operated by a government corporation. The radio was operated by a radio, owned and operated by a government corporation. So it was all in the hands of the government, and the government decided that there should be an English-language newspaper, Mm. that uh, there was one in the Nepali language, the largest newspaper. They said we should have one in English, and they were looking for people who could write good English. And I had, in my senior Cambridge exam, which came from England, I had A-plus in English language, an A plus in English literature. And then the, the, these headhunters came up to the house and they said, oh, we heard you did very well in your English. We are starting an English newspaper. Would you like to join it? And I said, oh, I'll, I'll give it a try. <laughs> so I joined the newspaper as its chief reporter. I worked there for a total of 19 years. Yeah. Did you like it? I liked it. That, that's the reason. You know, mm-hmm. I, I joined as chief reporter. I became the chief editor of that newspaper. Mm-hmm. Then they moved me to the Nepali newspaper, which was the largest in the country. I became editor of that paper for five years. Then they said, oh, you are a good manager too. Why don't you manage the whole corporation? So I became the chairman and general manager of the company with 700 staff. And <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a big thing. I mean, and it was so difficult to run a corporation mm-hmm. to that size with mm-hmm. 700 people. In a, in a poor country, you know, so it was very difficult. And mm. so, but then I it's worked for five more years. Then uh, I, I, I got a little tired mm. and I, I left to join an international organization, so mm. which is a media organization. And ever since up to now, I'm still with the media. I'm, I'm still connected with uh, a few you know, non-governmental organizations, the NGOs in Nepal. <laughs> what would you say your most interesting story was when you were a journalist for that English well, paper? Well, you know, uh, I worked for the government newspaper. 
So at that time, the country was ruled by a monarchy. The king ruled the country with a kind of a, a political system that had some elected officials, elected members of parliament and so on, but it was controlled by the monarch and, and his team of uh, uh, professionals, you know. So at that time, my job was mainly to cover affairs of the government. In other words, if you don't use the euphemism, well, I covered all the developments and so on, I would be saying it was propaganda. You know, there's a lot of propaganda there. So the main stories were important personalities, the movement of the royal family, and the movement of the dignitaries, the celebrities, and... Uh, but then there were the social aspects, you know, there was the film industry and uh, there was there were other types of entertainment, sports. So I used to cover quite a lot uh, of, of the major events in the, happening in the country. But my interest, you know, throughout up to this time is in development journalism. I'm writing a chapter for a book now they are about to publish in Nepal on the initiatives that I was able to take in bringing development journalism into the Nepalese media. What do you mean by development by journalism? By development, you know, I often say the, the media in general covers the VIPs, personalities, wealth, and, <laughs> you know, the sensational happenings, accidents, you know. But a development story is more about the VOPs, the very ordinary people, you know, their work of their life, what do they achieve? You know, little things that they do that kind of tends to inspire others. Like human so, interest? More human interest and also development, you know. So, so that's um, because the social and economic development, that's the government always proclaims that's a priority, but they do nothing about it. Unfortunately, you know, so much is wasted even here in the United States, by the media. In what way? And I don't watch much television. Right. But what, what appears on television oh, yeah. most of the time a is a waste of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that money could go for a better cause. Mm. And that's mm. more development and inspiring stories. You know, you know, success breeds success. Right. You talk about successful stories. Mm. Negativity breeds Depression, I mean, it, it kind of breeds negativity. I mean, you feel bad. Every time you, we watch the local news, you say, oh my God, so many accidents. We don't see accidents every day, but they're only in the media. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> now, did you run into the Baha'i faith while you were a journalist at the English paper? Uh, yes. Can you yes. tell us your story about running into the Baha'i faith? Bahai. Yeah. Well, you know, in, uh, I, I joined the media, uh, the, the chief reporter of this newspaper called The Rising Nepal, uh, in 1965. I had no training in journalism, absolutely none. I used to work for the British uh, Information Service, that the embassy they had an information service, which collected information from the media, anything that they covered about the British affairs, anything of interest to the British government. Then if it was in Nepali, I would translate into English. And if it was in English, I would cut it up and paste it. <laughs> so I would keep clippings for the ambassador to read. You know, I had done that for a few months. And that's when I 
got some interest in journalism. And when they invited me to join this newspaper, I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. Now, in 1971, I had an opportunity to attend a, a, a postgraduate course in journalism in India. It was called the Indian Institute of Mass Communication. They offered an annual program for journalists from developing countries. So there we were. There were about 21 journalists from 18 countries uh, taking part in a course that, that was conducted by the Indian Institute of Mass Communication. They brought professors from different institutions and they had their own uh, staff and a few professors. So they used to teach and there they, they had labs and so on where we could practice and so on. So that was my first exposure to modern journalism as practiced in India and elsewhere. So I joined that course for a year. Two months later, there was an Iranian student, a journalism student that joined the course and she was a Baha'i. Was she from Iran? She was from Iran. She was from Iran. She was the first Baha'i pioneer to the Philippines. Pioneer being? She she wanted to serve the faith. One way of serving the Baha'i faith is to tra- go to another country, live there, study there or work there and talk about the faith as much as possible to the local population. So there were... Iranian students in the Philippines studying, but she was the first Baha'i student to go to the Philippines and then, uh, you know, mix with uh, other Baha'is there and, and be of service there. So, and volunteer different projects and so on. So she was there. And what happened was in the Philippines at that time in 1971, there was some kind of uprising and all the foreign store students were told to go back home. So she goes to, goes back to Iran and, and someone said, there's a course in India. Why don't you go and attend that course? If they have for one year, you could continue your study of journalism, which you started in the Philippines and had to discontinue. So why don't you go uh, to, to India? And so she came, although two months late, she came and joined the course. And what happened after that is we liked each other. We had our engagement at the Baha'i Center in Delhi in, in February, and we got married in April, and then we went back to Nepal. That was 1972. Did you become a Baha'i before you got no, married? No, not right so away. So when you got married, you were still not a Baha'i? Yes, I okay. was a non-Baha'i. All right. She was a Baha'i. Her parents were Baha'is, and uh, I was a non-Baha'i. We went back, and, and there were Baha'is in Nepal. So there was a Baha'i community, and we used to be participating in different activities and so on. There were Baha'i firesides in the homes of Baha'is. That firesides were being uh, informal meetings yes. at people's homes right. to tell them about the Baha'i right. faith. Yeah. There's a beautiful story of, of an American Baha'i who was settled in Nepal. He used to write articles for my newspaper, and I didn't know he was a Baha'i until I went back from Delhi. Up to that point, he used to come with the articles. He used to say, oh, Keith, how are you today? And Keith would say, oh, I'm fine. You know, he didn't talk much. I brought you another article. I would take that article. And he always wrote very well. So we used to publish it right away. When I went back 
after I knew what Baha'i was, then I met Keith again. I said, was, I learned that he was a Baha'i because he had a fireside at his house and we all used to go there. He used to have some readings, Baha'i readings, readings from other religions and some discussions. And, uh, and he always have uh, wonderful snacks at the end, you know, so everybody loved going to Keith for the discussions and also the snacks. And then the beautiful story is he came back to the United States. He taught at Stanford University, lived in uh, San Mateo in uh, California. Recently, he got very sick. He, he was in his 92nd year or something. He got very sick. At that time, a Baha'i couple visited him there. And they are still in California now in, in uh, Foster City. So they visited him. And then Keith said, you know, I loved your country. We loved our country. I loved the people. I'd like to do something for that country. And he said, I'm going to leave all my assets to the people of Nepal. So he has a beautiful home, apparently, and he has some assets, which is bequeathing to the Baha'is and others, the Nepalese population. He wants a beautiful health center to be built there for people who don't have much access to health care. About three weeks ago, he died. The Baha'i couple there in San Francisco attended his funeral. And now they have his family and his friends, along with our Baha'i friend, have now formed a kind of a trust. A, a, a trust, yes. There is a trust now. And it's almost certain that there will be a, a health center in his name in Nepal. Sweet. So that was going back to 1966, 67. That's when I first met Keith. Mm-hmm. In 1973, I became a Baha'i. So tell me about the process from being a non-Baha'i for several years to then becoming a Baha'i. Well, in Nepal, the, the national religion was Hinduism. Street religion being Hinduism, there's no conversion. You could not change your religion. If anybody you know, asked you to change your religion, you'd be jailed for six years. If you changed your religion, you'd also be going with him for six years. (laughs) So you couldn't officially change your religion. And actually, there's no open teaching. You know, you cannot teach your religion. The Universal House of Justice, the apex body of the Baha'is, instructed the Baha'is not to do anything that jeopardized the Baha'i community or broke the country's laws. So the teaching was among friends and family. So, you know, we would talk about the faith. If anybody wanted to become faith, there, there was no official registration. You know, we just said, I want to be a Baha'i. Okay, come to the feast, next 19-day feast. So that's when all the community members meet. So that's the only way the, the Baha'i community was growing in Nepal. There was no official registration. And that applied to other religions too. So that was that up to 1990. In 1990, they, the monarch uh, relinquished his power and gave it to the people. And since then, we have had democracy. 
there is a elected parliament and the parliament has written a new constitution and the new constitution allows people to change their religion if you want but you cannot proselytize i mean that's and, and the bahais don't do that so so we can teach we can have uh, meetings and firesides and you know gatherings and it's where every religion is free to practice its own religion and uh, since 2006 there's been more freedom the country has been declared uh, a federal republic and and the state is now secular so that in the constitution is an interim constitution and there is a the constituent assembly that's trying now to frame a new constitution which i'm sure will be very liberal mm. see the thing is as i as i told you earlier my family was very liberal we didn't have all these prejudices that we find in society low caste high caste these are some of the prejudices we have color and outsider and you know your family your clan and we didn't have that so i was quite liberal that way and then going to a jesuit school somehow even christianity had to compromise with hinduism in so many ways to be able to stay there and and teach you know so that kind of uh, accepting all of the religions as being true accepting all the essential verities of the different religions that enabled me to accept the bahai faith which does exactly that you know we accept all the religions as having come from one true god for mankind at different times in different periods in history so so it was kind of easy for me to mm-hmm. uh, accept the bahai faith and my wife was already bahai and mm-hmm. our children were growing up in children's classes bahai children's classes and so on so right. why did it take you 3 years before you became well, a bahai it, it didn't take me exactly 3 years maybe a year i would say uh-huh. we went back in 1972 back to nepal and i became a bahai in 1973 i see and i learned about the faith in 1970 about oh. 70 71 right. you know yeah. learned a little more about it and the interesting thing is you know nepal was having its first bahai national convention in 1972 april of 1972 the hand of the cause you know, that that's a bahai designation for some special figures in the bahai faith you know appointed by the guardian of the faith the founder of the faith appointed some special souls as being the hands of the cause of god so mr furutan hand of the cause is a citizen of iran who was a law for a long time in russia so he came to nepal as a representative of the universal house of justice so the universal house of justice sent a special representative to the first national convention in every country so he was there and he traveled to nepal in the same airplane that we did my wife and i did because uh, we we finished our course and we were going back home and we happened to be on the same plane and the national convention was taking place in a hotel and it was going on and he said i i took my wife there because uh, she was going to be at the convention and i was going to say goodbye he said mr furutan said oh 
you have some time that you can spend with us? I said, yes, but you have your national convention. He said, no, sit down. <laughs> so there I was. A year before I became a Baha'i, I was sitting there at the national convention of the Baha'is. You know? <laughs> so that was uh, yeah. my exposure to the Baha'i faith. Right. I mean, I, it's, I, yeah, now, I, did you ever officially become a Baha'i? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that was uh, 1973. And there is a story to it, which I was telling Joanne on, the, on our drive to uh, Florence right now, right now. You see, what happened is uh, the Baha'is were buying a piece of property, a house, to have its uh, meetings and uh, to function as the national center. The faith was not registered. As I told you earlier, you know, a religious institution could not be registered officially. So it had to be in the name of an individual. And somehow they wanted it in my name. You know, there were these counselors from India and so on. It has to be in your name. I said, uh, it doesn't matter. It can be in my name, but I, I prefer not to. They said, no, it has to be in your name. You know, it's just a question of trust. The, the counselor from India, she was so used to having people sign cards in India India is a secular country. Secular right. So a counselor is... Um... The counselor means there were special, uh, specially appointed uh, individuals on what is called the Continental Board of Counselors. You have one in America, you have one in South America, one in Asia. So there were a few Indian members in the Asian Continental Board of Counselors, and they looked after the affairs in Nepal. So they were there to help uh, buy this piece of property, and they somehow thought uh, it should be in my name. And this counselor pulled out a card from India. She said, it, you know, I don't feel very comfortable. You, ha you haven't even declared as a Baha'i, and this whole building, which costs so much money, is going to be in your name. I said, well, what do you want me to do? Sign it here. So I signed this card from India. <laughs> so that, you, you officially probably, became a Baha'i through uh, in India, basically. Exactly. And that's probably the only card that's been signed in Nepal. <laughs> <laughs> what a story. Looking back, did you notice an influence of being exposed to the Baha'i faith to your work as a journalist at that point? Yes. Yes, you know, sometimes it would put me in a difficult position. People belonging to other religions were always looked upon with a little suspicion. And here I was in a very important position <laughs> as, you know, kind of a number one journalist in the largest newspaper in the country, the head of the organization, you know, close to the government, close to the king and so on. And he's not a Hindu. I mean, you know, that kind of awkwardness was felt at times. But at the same time, because I did my work well and, you know, uh, people trusted me and um, generally, you know, they found that uh, the Baha'is didn't indulge in anything that broke the law of the country. They were always expressing their loyalty to the government in power and uh, always helpful. You know, all the Baha'is, they were very helpful. What can we do for society? What can you do in your development work? Can we volunteer here, volunteer here? So, since Baha'is were looked upon with respect, so I didn't have such a hard time that way. 
But sometimes it did. I mean, when a Baha'i would do something wrong, it would come back to me, you know, <laughs> as the most prominent Baha'i in the country. So that did happen at times. And, uh, but then uh, we would explain it and you know, say, oh, well, you know, it happens. <laughs> right. right. We're only so, people, right? <laughs> <laughs> so after your 19 years of journalism yes. at that English-speaking uh, newspaper, you said you branched out into a new area. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yes. You see, what happened was uh, this this newspaper where I worked, and uh, which I ran for for five years, and I worked for nineteen years. There was a a friend of mine that I had met in in Algiers. In nineteen seventy three, I traveled with the only as the only journalist with the King of Nepal in a, in a delegation to Algeria for the non-aligned summit conference. And I met an, a Norwegian journalist. He was a television journalist. He wanted an interview with the king and so on. So we became friends. In 1979, he established an organization called the Worldview International Foundation. What he was trying to do was promote video at that time as a development tool. You had portable video sets, you had uh, cassettes, you could go to a village, record a program, you could record some program, take it to another village, show them, have a screening, and, and talk about development, you know. So it became a kind of a development tool. The radio was there, and the, the cassette recorders were there, that's the audio aspect. But then this added the video aspect where people could actually see, you know, their own faces, and they, we even took cameras out and taught villagers to take their, make their own videos, uh, you know, for screening and so on. So he used to come every six months to Nepal. He would come to me, visit me, and then I would take him out to lunch. And at lunchtime, you would say, why do you work in this organization? You know, you don't even have freedom of expression. You, you, I know you feel very awkward. You feel good for the, you know, you feel good about helping so many people, but that's not enough. Come and join my organization, you know. So he used to do that. And uh, after five years of management, I was so tired, you know. And one thing that happened was this was a corporation was government supported. In the, in the five years that I ran this corporation, it became a profit-making organization. And in that five years, to make it profit-making, I had to inspire everybody to work harder, do more. And I told them, once we start making profit, we'll share it. You'll get more. Salaries will be much higher. You'll have all types of benefits, health, you know. So I did all that. Then I realized that the government would not allow me to do as I wanted, because it was a government corporation. And if I did that for my staff, then what would happen is other corporations would ask the government, he said, oh, you did that, why can't I do it here? So that wouldn't happen. So when I, I, I kind of felt discouraged too. And I said, maybe this is the time. So this Arne Fjordhoft, that, that was the name of the journalist from mine from Norway, he was having his national convention in Kathmandu at the time. He said, look, I have my national convention here. He was bringing his people from all the countries in Asia. The Worldview, the Worldview International Foundation was having its convention in Kathmandu. So he said, I'm having my convention here. They'll meet you. I want you to meet them. And why don't you join me? And I said, okay, Arne, I'll join you. 
<laughs> so that's when I decided that I would join him. And uh, of course, he was able to provide me much more benefits than uh, what the government provided me. He gave me an international salary. I mean that, which I never saw. I never, I never thought I would make that much money, which by American standard is poverty. But I mean, for me, it was a lot of money. So I had all that, and it was very challenging using new technology and so on. That organization still exists. Mm. That was. And in, what did you do at Worldview? I became the regional director for Asia, visiting all the different media centers that they had established, one in Indonesia, one in India, one in Pakistan, one in Nepal. So I used to visit them. Headquarters were in Sri Lanka, in Colombo. I had to visit very often. The man himself was from Norway. So I had to visit Norway also every now and then. So I used to visit these centers, you know, coordinate activities and so on. So that mm-hmm. that was very challenging. I worked with them for two years. And you said the worldview is still... A, it's still a, there. Yeah. I'm still chairman of the board. Of the board, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, uh, I went to Nepal in uh, April this year for uh, one and a half months. I returned in May. They called me there. They said, we have to have this board meeting. The director's term is, ex- is, is expiring. You know, so we have to renew his term and everything. you have to be there. So I flew to Nepal, uh, to, to help them. So I mm. still work with them. It's a very nice. Now, answer. what did you do after those two years? Mm-hmm. You see, what we wanted me to go to Africa to the, for the, to the regional office in, uh, Zambia, so, which I didn't want to. I had small children. And at that time, my wife passed away. That was in 1986. My first wife passed away in 1986. She had asthma, very bad case of asthma. And, and Kathmandu was not a good place for uh, people with asthma. It's a closed valley, and it can get to be very humid. Every time the clouds collected over the mountains, you know, she would start coughing. So very severe. And uh, so she died in 1986. And yet, for five years, I was a single parent <laughs> taking care of two little kids. And it was only in 1991 that I married Joanne. Joanne and I married in 1981, which has made things very easy because she was a close friend of my late wife. And the children were very fond of her, attending her children's classes and so on. So Now, Joanne's American. Yes. And how is it that she was in well, Nepal? Well, what happened is... Uh, in 1982, Joanne was visiting her brother in Nepal. So her brother was a research scholar there. He was working on a project, doing his PhD. Joanne is visiting. She got a job and decided to stay on. That was in 1982. And she there, and then she served the Baha'i faith as a Auxiliary board member, that is also special individuals helping the progress of the faith. And she was doing that. She was also a member of the National Spiritual Assembly. That's the national body that take, looks after the affairs of the Baha'is in the country. So she was there and she was being a, a teacher, a qualified teacher from uh, New Jersey. So she could teach at the international school. So she got a job in the international school. So she stayed on. I mean, she stayed on for 30 years. <laughs> so after my wife died, just after that, she came back to the United States. She was here in UMass 
doing it, trying to do her PhD, and then went back with another master's. I mean, so she was here. We decided at the time that we would marry. So in 1991, I came to the United States, met her, and then we decided. I went back, she came back, and then we got married in uh, in Nepal, in Kathmandu. She got a job with the international school again. She had been teaching up to the time we left in 2005. So what were you doing uh, for work while you were a single parent? Well, you know, I worked with uh, Worldview for two years. Mm-hmm. Then, they, you know, we established an institute for training of journalists. It was called the Nepal Press Institute. It still exists. I'm, I'm writing a chapter for a book they are publishing now on development approach to journalism that we started in Nepal and spread in Asia. What did we do? What is the status now? Well, you know, so I'm writing that book. Uh, the deadline is July 15th and we're watching too many football games. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what happened is when Joanne was here in 1987, she bought this house here in Montague. She used to come to the United States every summer during the summer holidays. Sometimes I would come with her, but most of the time she would come here to visit her mom in New Jersey, in Summit, New Jersey. In 2005, her mother got very sick. The doctor said she wouldn't survive more than six months or so. So she said, this is my last chance to help my mother. I've been working for 30 years. I think I'll go. And I said, I've never stayed out of the country for more than six weeks, so I will come with you. So I left everything, and she left her job, I left my job, so we both came to be with her mother. But she was very tough. She she lived for two more years. So we spent two years with her in New Jersey, and then moved to Montague in 2006. Mm-hmm. Or seven. So there's there's a large time span there between what the mid 1990s to 2005. So what were you doing during those oh, years? At that time, I, I was with the Nepal Press Institute. In between, I used to serve international organizations as consultant here and consultant there. One time, I was training the journalists in Bhutan. Another time, I was in Mongolia trying to establish a press institute there, and another time in Sri Lanka, trying to help establish a press institute in Sri Lanka, in Pakistan, visiting the press institute to make it function better. You know, So what happened is, after I started working with the press institute, the international organizations thought that the best-run press institute was in Nepal. So I had a staff of two and a half people, but then still it was the best-run press institute. So they used to ask me to help here and help there. So yeah. I used to travel quite a lot here and there, helping to establish a press institute and help with development journalism in Asia, in different Asian countries. Around that time, what happened is something dramatic happened. It was the 1990, was the re-establishment of democracy in the country where the monarchy gave up power to the elected um, officials. So at that time, they did a, a survey of the media situation to see what could be done to bring the media in line with the democratic practices. So this committee that was formed by the government recommended, because of us, I mean, we were the ones who were behind it, 
the establishment of private radio stations. So they said it is time to have private radio stations and they should be small stations, possibly rural stations, stations in small towns, on the FM band, so you couldn't be uh, hurting the feelings of neighboring countries like India and China who could swallow you up anytime, you know. So you wouldn't do that, but it could be used for a development purpose. So then we started working on a draft of the, the media law that would allow private broadcasting. It took about five years to do all that. This was a, this committee was established in 1992. It recommended the establishment of private radio station and also television station local. And then uh, the government started dragging its feet. They said, India has been a democracy for 60 years. They don't have any private radio stations. It's all, all India radio broadcasting from New Delhi. Pakistan doesn't have any private radio station, not Sri Lanka or Bangladesh. You know, how can Nepal have private radio station? So they started dragging their feet. But we started working on it and, and everybody started working around me, you know. So I brought about six media organizations, the most prominent media organizations that were not even in speaking terms with each other using Baha'i principles of unity, <laughs> brought them together, and for the first time, everybody was talking the same language. Yes, we are ready for private radio station. So then we pioneered the first radio station. I was chairman of the group that established the first community radio station in Kathmandu. Radio Sagarmata is still the best station. That was in 1997. So, 97, first radio station... There are now 450 radio stations throughout the country at the foot of Mount Everest, at the foot of Annapurna, in the valleys of the south, bordering India, bordering Pakistan, all over now. There are Nepalese radio stations and there still no private radio stations in the other six countries of South Asia. So Nepal has been turned into a radio country. So that's what I was busy with. And, uh, you know, my hair, became, <laughs> lost a lot of hair and became white. And there's a lot of um, tensions and crises. And there are a lot of stories behind how we did it, you know, how we smuggled in the first transmitter. And the government was furious that they sent a letter saying, your transmitter will be confiscated. So for the next few weeks, the transmitter was traveling from home to home. In, in hiding, you know, so we have so many lovely stories of how we turned Nepal into a radio country. Now there are many private stations. Half of the private radio stations are community stations. They are owned and operated by local communities, independent of any outsiders, outside help. We trained their people. The two things that they all required, they all required were equipment, they usually didn't have the money to buy equipment, so we got some money from Norway and uh, Netherlands and uh, Germany and Denmark, a big time. So we got money to buy transmitters and antenna, and the rest, the community would gather, bring everybody together, all the different groups, women's groups, youth groups, and uh, uh, seniors, you know, each group would run their own program. And they, they, you know, there is a station that's run by the doctors and nurses in the hospitals. The doctors are 
make the programs and the nurses broadcast, you know, so beautiful. There's a beautiful uh, story of how Nepal became a radio country. Kudos. So that's what I was busy with until I left in 2005. Now tell me about your book, Bharat. Well, What's the title? They, 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 uh, I, I don't know what the title is going to be. It's, it's being published by the Nepal Press Institute. They, they have assigned a chapter for everybody. And I'm supposed to write the genesis of the community uh, media, uh, the especially development uh, journalism, how it is now in, in Nepal and rest of Asia, where I work most of the time. I don't know what the title is going to be. They have assigned somebody else to be the editor because it's going to be published in Nepal. So it's coming up. But there is a book about me. I mean, <laughs> that was published a few years ago. You know, there was a journalist from Nepal who came to the United States on a Fulbright scholarship. He did his PhD in journalism from Missouri, University of Missouri. And he was teaching uh, journalism in uh, in Georgia, University of Georgia in Atlanta. And he went back to Nepal and decided to stay on. And now uh, he's running what is called the Nepal Media Foundation. And I'm the chairman of that foundation. Okay. But his uh, PhD dissertation, he wrote about my contribution to the media in Nepal. It's called A Compassionate Journalist. I wish I had a coffee for you. I'll yeah. find a coffee somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's called A Compassionate Journalist. And this is a, this is a PhD dissertation. Yes. It's a, it's a biographical approach to writing yeah. a dissertation. Right. Uh, so his, his director said, some people have done it. Why don't you try it? Mm. So he did that. So what are your plans for the future now? You know, Joanne and I, you know, we live in Montague. We love the place. It's lovely. I mean, it's fresh air, you know, pure, plenty of water and, you know, electricity uninterrupted. And, you know, if the electricity goes off for half an hour, we begin to worry. And I come from a country where, you know, it's supposed to have the second largest water resources in the world, the Himalayan mountains. The glaciers melting and bringing water down. There's no water in the home. This time when I went home, we were buying water in, in tankers. And we were digging wells. We have two wells on our property in Nepal. There's no electricity. There's what they call load shedding. You know, <laughs> Certain areas lose electricity so many hours a day. Up to 12 hours a day, there's no electricity. So Joanne and I, of course, we went solar. So we... We in Nepal we have uh, lights and we can operate our computers and uh, watch television with with the solar energy, but most homes don't have electricity. So that kind of confusion there, and we have a lovely you know environment here. Had chaotic driving in Nepal. Joanne says she'll never drive back. If we ever go back, you know she won't drive, and she loves driving here. So right now what we are saying is. We don't know. We are happy where we are. You know, we like the community there. We, we have nice neighbors. And uh, and then uh, there's a Baha'i community there. When we feel like associating with a larger community, we come to Amherst and, you know, Hadley. And <laughs> so so it's, it's really been wonderful staying here in the United States this past five of the nine years that we have been here. And the other thing is, you know, our children are here. You know, our, both our children are now in San Francisco. 
and we are close. It's not that close, but, but there is a difference between flying 20 hours from Nepal and flying six hours from New York or Boston to uh, San Francisco. Well, Bharat, I want to thank you so much for telling your story. It was a pleasure speaking with you, Warren. I belong to the media. I mean, I, I, I love the media. I, I really think that, that the media in the, cha- in the future will change. It really will change. In what way? I mean, in, in change in a dramatic way, not in a cosmetic way, but in a dramatic way. It will be used to educate people, to enlighten people, to uplift the spirits of the people, to achieve, achieve greater heights of achievement that human beings can achieve. It's not just material prosperity, but it's moral and ethical, spiritual, you know, that media has a great role to play in that. This is the only way you can reach a large number of people at one time. So how can you use that media in the way we are using? I'm sure in future, all those people who control the media will feel ashamed Mm. the way they are running it, and you are doing a great job. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Barack Korala one of the most prominent senior journalists of Nepal, with a professional career of over four decades. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
fleeting shadow Pass beyond the basis Stages of doubt This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.